honest with you, uh, this last six weeks or so, I've been thinking about suffering a lot. Not that I was looking for it. Um, but it seems to have found me. Uh, whether I want it or not. What's that? Yeah, there's that kind of. We'll talk about that in a second. But I've been thinking about a lot. I've been a lot of, a lot of suffering in the last few weeks. Um, and, and I got to thinking about that. Is, you know, eventually you're sitting there at night. You're thinking about stuff. And your wife decides it's 7 o'clock and she's going to bed. And you're not ready for bedtime. So you're sitting there thinking about life. And uh, I realized, if you think about it, there's really four kinds of suffering. There's, there's self-caused suffering, right? Like two weeks ago, I fell down the back stairs at our house and twisted my ankle, and I've been in pain ever since. That's self-caused, though, because if I'd have been careful with TC, I was taking the recycling out. I was trying to do good for the planet. <laughs> I fell down the stairs. But you know, as my dad would have said, if you don't use your brain, your body suffers. And um, I suffered in the rolling of my ankle and have ever since, although it's getting quite a bit better. Um, so that's one kind of suffering where you're caught because I was being careless and should have been watching my step. But there's also, there's, there's others cause suffering, right? That's suffering where someone else does something, but you have to suffer for it. So for example, every time the Cedar Falls City Council votes to build a new roundabout, that is others cause suffering, and my suffering is great because of them building the evil roundabouts. <laughs> had this candidate, you know, it was elections last week, and you know how people, like for city council, they go door to door. And this guy comes to my door, and he, he a couple weeks ago, and he, he's, he's doing his candidate thing. And we're talking for a second, and I just looked at him, and I said, look, I, I only have one issue when it comes to city government. I said, how do you feel about roundabouts? And he goes, oh, I hate roundabouts. We should not be building any more roundabouts. And I just looked at him, and I said, put up as many yard signs as you want. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter. I'm voting for you. You got my vote. He lost. <laughs> Good guy. Okay. Then, then there's, there's what I call no-fault suffering. Okay. We have four deaths in my family. That's more deaths than we've had in my family practically in the last decade. Four deaths. My dad, my Uncle Richard, Jen's Aunt Bobby, Jen's Uncle Roger. In fact, what was funny is we found out about Uncle Roger dying as we were leaving the funeral for Aunt Bobby. It was like, whoa, bro. And that, of course, doesn't include other deaths that people this year. There's no fault in those. Okay, but that's not really what we're talking about here. Okay. 
I don't think any of you have spent time in prison for the gospel. I don't think so. I don't think any of you have been beaten for the gospel. I mean, maybe you've gotten into a fight and shared Jesus and they punched you. I don't know. It's never happened to me. I mean, got punched for other reasons. Um, I mean, people besides Marissa. <laughs> she just takes a shot at me. suffering because of our faith. When I was in Ukraine in the 90s teaching, there was a guy in my class who had spent more than 20 years in prison in the former Soviet Union for sharing his faith. That's suffering for the gospel. Because I'm betting Soviet prison in Siberia is not a real fun place. I mean, I like it cold, but not that cold. And I like Russian bear dogs, but not when they're trying to eat <coughs>
It's not enough to purge us completely from our sins. That Christians have to make up what is lacking in Christ's suffering by their own suffering after death. So when you get into the deeper points of Roman Catholicism and you hear about things like purgatory and the treasury of merit and works of supererogation, these are all things based on that same idea. Now that can't really be Paul's point because we saw last week that in Christ's preeminence over the church, he's preeminent over the church because he, his work alone is sufficient to reconcile us to God, just in the verses just previous to this. Paul to say, well, Christ's work alone is enough to reconcile us to God, and then to do an about face and say, well, but you still have to pay for some of your sins, would kind of undermine that whole argument. The New Testament is very clear that, that Christ's sufferings need nothing added to them for our salvation. Jesus' death on the cross, the work of salvation is completed. The idea that Paul would be talking about some sort of purgatory or something like that is ruled out both in the general content of the New Testament and of this letter. Um, and of course, we have complete lack of any discussion of purgatory in Scripture. And in fact, what's interesting is the word that is um, translated as sufferings, or, or as afflictions, I mean, there at the end of the verse, is actually nowhere used in the New Testament to say anything about Christ's death on the cross. It's only used about human suffering. So, I think the In My Flesh talks about Paul's physical abuse and his imprisonment during his ministry. We know that um, he had his share of physical pain, right? That he endured at the hands of Christ-hating people, persecutors. That happened because he was trying to build up the church. Paul wasn't persecuted because of his personality or because he had bad jokes. He was persecuted for the body of Christ because he was bringing forth the gospel. So we know he talks about in various places all of his sufferings, right? His lashes and his imprisonments and his shipwrecks and all these kinds of things. Things I've never suffered in the name of Christ. I've never been beaten, I've never been shipwrecked. I haven't gone hungry because I preached the gospel. I missed lunch a couple times. I've never been beaten. I was a prisoner. That wasn't really persecution. It felt like persecution. <laughs> so what do we do with that filling up which is lacking in Christ's ability? Go after us instead. Earthly powers know they can't hurt Jesus, 
so they go after his people instead. It was in that sense that Paul fills up what's lacking in Christ's affliction. Part of being a follower of Jesus just might be that someday we are called to category four suffering. Suffering on behalf of Jesus. Paul, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians verse, chapter 1, verse 5, he says, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. His point there being that we represent Christ and we serve his church, then there might be suffering. We need to be willing to suffer for his name. But Paul also tells us there's comfort there and there's joy. He said he rejoices in those sufferings because we're doing it for our Lord who suffered for us to be saved. Paul could rejoice because he knew his suffering was part of that call to serve Christ and to serve a greater purpose than just his own desires. It was part of his calling to serve both the Colossians and us as his suffering was part of what made him an effective servant in Christ's church. And so now he's going to talk about that ministry and his purpose in ministry in the next few verses. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints. One of the things I like about Paul is that Paul unequivocally knew his role and focused all his energy on it. Even when he's in prison, because remember he's writing this letter from prison, he isn't fretting about his case, he isn't sitting around thinking, man, I can't wait to see some officials and get off of house arrest. You don't see him anywhere bemoaning his circumstances. In fact, if we were to go to the letter of Philippians, which is also written while he's in the same jail, he actually talks about, eh, it's actually kind of good I'm here in prison because this is happening, this is happening, that sort of thing. He understands God has given him a job to do, and he needs to faithfully carry out that mission. For our benefit, for the Colossians' benefit, that he carries out and stays focused. And then he talks about the mystery. Now, you know, you may have heard this before, you understand that a mystery in the New Testament is something that was either completely unknown in the Old Testament or only hinted at, but not really made clear. But it's now revealed in the New Testament. He's going to explain in the next couple of verses what that mystery is. But before we do that, I, I want to remind us what he wrote in Ephesians chapter 3 as far as his ministry goes. He says in verses 4 through 9 of chapter 3 of Ephesians, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, there's a mystery word again, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all these saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the administration. That will be important in a second of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. 
So now here in Ephesians, he uses that word again, mystery. In this case, he says the mystery here is that the Gentiles would be grafted in as the church into one body of Christ through the gospel. And that then he is given a God-given commission to preach that gospel, that they were now to be part of God's people through Jesus to the Gentiles. And then his other job was to bring to life the administration of that church, which is what he's talking about in the mystery. In other words, part of Paul's job was to take the gospel of the Gentiles and then tell the Gentiles, that would be us, how the church is supposed to work. What he means by the administration of the mystery. The mystery in Ephesians is the church itself, the Gentiles getting the gospel. And then Paul's job is to tell us how to run the church, how the church should go. So he's focused on his God-given role to be the one to carry the message. And that message is both in continuity with, but distinct from the message of the Old Covenant, right? Because he says it wasn't known in ages past. The sons of men in ages past are now known. So when that happens, no one is surprised. If you've read your Old Testament, I don't think anybody would be surprised that God wanted old, wanted Gentiles to, to come to know. There's a lot of stuff in the Testament. It's not like God was trying to hide himself from the Gentiles. No, no Gentiles. What was surprising in the Ephesians passage is that God would do it by using Jesus' death and resurrection to bring the Gentiles into God's people that God would use the Jewish Messiah to make that happen. <clears throat> the mystery in Colossians is a little further take on that. Because here, Paul talks about the mystery of Christ in us. Verse 27. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, of the first mystery, is the church itself, which is, now this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now the mystery in this context, same kind of language as Ephesians, where the mystery was the Gentile church, now the mystery takes that another step, Christ in you, the hope of glory. I think of all the mysteries that God reveals in the New Testament, there's several where he uses that word and explains something we didn't see before. This is probably the most profound. That Christ is in us. The hope of glory in us. The, New, the Old Testament predicted the coming of the Messiah. The Old Testament, if you read it carefully, and especially looking back now that we have the New Testament, you can understand that the, the sufferings of the Messiah and a lot of his ministry was actually predicted just in a veiled way. But the idea that he would form an additional people of God, the church, and then he would actually live in the lives and hearts of those people, those redeemed Gentiles, the church, you would never have gotten that idea very Closest you might have got is the new covenant that talks about writing the law on their hearts. But even then, 
wouldn't pick up on that idea that Christ would be in us. But the New Testament is clear that Christ, the Holy Spirit, takes up permanent residence in all believers. Look at Romans 8 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Okay, well, that's cool. The Spirit of God dwells in you. I get that. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of. Oh, says Christ there. Does not belong to him. Notice how Paul uses the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ interchangeably. And notice that his argument then is if you don't have the Spirit, you don't belong to him. What we're talking positively about is that if you belong to Jesus, then he lives in you. Or Ephesians 2.22. In him, Jesus, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The idea that when we're together, we're a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So both individually as followers of Jesus, Christ in you, the hope of glory, Spirit of Christ, Spirit of God, as well as corporately as the church, where we are now the temple of God on earth. Right? There's no physical temple go over to Jerusalem, what's on the threshing floor of Arun and the Jebusite on the top of Mount Moriah? Mosque of Omar, right? No temple. No temple there yet. It's coming over. It's not there. Where's the temple of God right now? Christ indwells all believers is the source of this hope, this hope of glory. What fills the gospel with power and, and makes it so attractive isn't just that it promises present joy and health, all those great things, right? It's not even that through Christ we receive the forgiveness of sins. We do. It's pretty awesome. But that through Christ we have eternal life, blessing, and glory. When Christ comes to live in the believer, his presence is like the down payment of the promise of eternal life. The assurance that we have of future glory. So Paul's going to then connect some dots for us on why he's so focused on his mission. Because that's kind of where he started, right? His mission. And then he gets off on this Christ in you. Excuse me, Christ in you. And now he's going to come back here when he talks about God's goal for everyone to be mature in Christ. Last couple of verses. In him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. So Paul is willing to suffer whatever indignities and pains it takes to serve out his commission from the Lord to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Bring the light and the mystery of Christ to believers. 
all those sorts of things. He's going to take the people suffer whatever it takes. The hope, the glory of eternal life is so compelling that every bit of energy that God supplies to him, he is willing to expend so that every follower of Jesus can become a share in Christ. You know, Paul would have really been a terrible Instagram influencer. Because if you read some of that post, it's all about you need your self-care time. And you need to, to pour your energy into yourself, blah, blah, blah. And Paul's like, no, no, I'm born, I'm saw whatever energy, whatever God has for me, it's all for the gospel. It's all for the gospel. It's also that everybody can be presented mature in Christ. Because that's God's goal for us, right? He desires that we be mature in Christ. Just stay his goal. I, I, I know I sound like a broken record because I must hit this at least once in every fourth sermon. God's stated goal for you is to be like Jesus. Romans chapter 8. Okay? He's saying, predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son. You want to know what predestination is there? That's what predestination is. That God planned a long time ago that you would be like Jesus if you were a follower of Jesus. That's his goal for you. And so every form of suffering, every bit of teaching, every trial combined with the presence of Christ in us becomes another step on the road to becoming like Jesus. But only, it only works if we're willing to allow the presence of Christ in us to put those things in, into that perspective. Now, what do I mean by that? See, how we interpret events in our lives matters. Christ in us means that we have an entirely new paradigm to understand the sufferings we face in life. And that's where Paul started, right? He's talking about suffering. And he talks about rejoicing in his suffering. And I don't know about you, but I don't usually rejoice in my suffering. I don't even rejoice when I miss lunch. I'm just suffering. But not me. We have a new paradigm with Christ in us. We don't face those sufferings alone. We face them with Christ. So let's look at our four types of suffering now in light of Christ in us and being mature in Christ. So we have self-caused suffering, right? Now you know what? When, when, when self-caused suffering happens, we could just think, I am dumb. That's what I was thinking. I am, I am not who I am. Right? Or you know what? You know what happened? You know what? Some people, some people just go, I deserve it. I deserve to suffer. What happens if you try so many people think like that? But in Christ, it could be different. What if my self-caused suffering gives me a chance to sympathize with someone else who suffers? Maybe it allows me to be thankful he protected me from something worse. Could have broke my ankle. Didn't. Could have hit my head on the concrete. Probably wouldn't know to do. Even if it's sin, maybe my self-caused suffering is because of my sin. And in that case, maybe I swear to you deserve it a little bit. But it gives me an opportunity to repent and to lean into the grace of the gospel and go and sin no more. How about other cause suffering? There's plenty of that in the world, right? I mean, have you ever worked a job with other people? There's plenty of other cause. 
Or maybe I'll decide, you know what, yeah, other people are just evil. They're just all jerks. So I'll cut myself off from other people. Or, well, those people were rotten to me, so it justifies me being rotten. But see, in Christ, it becomes an opportunity to forgive as the Lord forgave me. If I ever needed to be forgiven for doing something wrong? Well, it's 11.26. I think I've made it so far this morning, but I'm sure by this afternoon. Give me a few more hours. It becomes an opportunity to pray for those who would be our enemies. It gives us an opportunity to identify with Jesus who suffered unjustly at the hands of unjust people. You know, if Jesus suffered at the hands of others and we live for Christ and Christ is in us, I'm not sure what we think we shouldn't suffer sometimes. It's going to happen. But what about no-fault suffering? Right? Suffering is not anybody's fault. Well, I could decide the world's just against me. Nothing good happens. Life is pain. There's no beauty or justice. Christ can decide that. I've been feeling that for a little while this week. That's grumpy.
think this morning about Jesus' sufferings, which were not for himself, but for us, so that we could be saved. And then how Paul, knowing Jesus, was willing to suffer whatever it took to take the gospel to the Gentiles so that we could know and experience Christ in us, the hope of glory. Father, help, I ask that you would help us in whatever sufferings we might face this week the future to always understand them through the lens of Christ in us. See them as opportunities to become more like Jesus, which is what you want for everyone else, to become more like you. Help us in our suffering to become more like Christ and to give you the glory for it.